Welcome to What's Your Beef, a Beef Australia production. Each week we will introduce you to people living and working in the beef community and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic triennial event. Hello, welcome to What's Your Beef. I'm Jane Cudahy. In this episode, we're hearing from Moira Lanzaren, a fourth generation grazier from the Northern Territory. Moira's story starts in the basalt country of North Queensland, where her deep love and understanding of country was ignited. A move to the Territory in the early 90s with her parents Mike and Claire O'Brien and her three siblings meant building a stud business together in a completely different landscape, but with modern ideas to land management. Yeah, we grew up on Craig's Pocket Station, which was the headwaters of the Burdekin River. Yeah, so our springs, the Kinrara, and I can't even remember the other names, but they started the Burdekin River flowing all year round. And just the most amazing property you could ever imagine. Basalt country, and they're surrounded by yeah, lava flow and um, Kinrara, yeah, from the Kinrara Volcano and magic country. It is magic country. It's as, um, well, I've only ever seen photos of that particular property, but um, it certainly is magnificent. Did you have Brahmins over there as well, or was that did they come when you moved to the territory? No, is uh, the Brahmin stud Kudati Brahmin stud was formed the year the month I was born. Is, uh, so. A long time ago. It's not that long. I think we're we're similar ages, Moira, so don't say that. (laughs) Uh, Our 40th anniversary of Kudadi was a while ago now, (laughs) Joe. But, yeah, so we started over there and um, from that base property, which my grandpa had won in a land ballot back in the 60s, and so it was a completely virgin block then, with grandpa and dad and his brothers, they set up all of the siblings on their own property. And from Kudadi, they bred the herds to stock all of those other properties. And then um, everywhere we've gone, our family and our Kudadi cows have travelled with us. Grandpa had always had an attraction uh, with the Territory right from early post-war days and he'd he'd been looking always further west and further out and dad had that same bug if you like for just developing land and we were selling trucking um, bulls over for sale to the Northern Territory and to the Kimberleys and they decided it made sense to actually bring the whole herd over to the Territory and establish a home base here. How old were you when you moved over? And so we were, I was just finishing grade 12, so my entire adult life has been spent in the Northern Territory. And so what do you, you obviously it was an, an age that you can remember, so what do you remember having grown up in that spectacular Kinrara area yeah. and then coming to the Northern Territory? They're two very different landscapes, so can you tell me about those first impressions? 
Yeah, the property that we moved to was Carmel Plains, a floodplain property next door to Kakadu. And we had what we called our high country and the floodplain. And the high country just simply meant that it didn't flood and was very heavily timbered. And as we drove in after the convoy and the final move up, the and all of these tall, timbered, yeah, quite heavily forested country. And I was like, oh, wow, it doesn't look like cattle country, but there's really nice timber. And we all had quite uh, an attraction for good timber. Turns out that all those straight trees were of absolutely no value at all and full of termites and rowdy rough. Only one that was any value from a timber point of view was the small, crooked, very dense hard ironwood. Oh, no. Um, the, but the floodplains were quite magic. Yeah, they would have been. Okay. So you've just painted this beautiful picture of, of where you moved to and, and you're obviously very invested in the cattle side of things. But you went to study business and eventually law. So what about those two studies, areas of study, attracted you? It was quite some time before I went back to study law. I'd always promised Dad 12 months at the station and um, we'd just moved to the new property and I'd had been offered uni placements in fine arts and applied science. Fine arts uh, and applied science story. They're so different. (laughs) That's amazing. So one had had a bit too much art and one had a bit too much science and I didn't really have the nice balance in between, Uh, whereas my lifestyle on the floodplains and um, my first job was actually as a park ranger in Kakadu. And, um, And so... That had a nice balance and I was like, well, I could look after my countryside and my landscape was identical on property as it was in Kakadu. And so I could look after that natural environment just as well. Plus I could have my cows. And so the station seemed like a bonus. The the 12 months um, that I'd promised dad turned out to be five years later. It was like, well, maybe I need to do something extra and I'd done um, some fine arts uh, courses and stuff at while I was on the station and things. I'd been handed the shoebox of check butts and invoices once I'd left school and I was like okay that's your responsibility now. Oh nice a shoebox that's that's so typical that's great. (laughs) What a a daunting (laughs) task. (laughs) Um, So uh, that one became my uh, the accounts and the bookkeeping became my responsibility and the cattle records was always just a natural thing. I was able to do short courses um, in the Territory. Yeah, they had a lot of training courses for preg testing and AI and I could also, uh, was able to train in semen testing and things like that on property. And so all of the animal husbandry science side was um, well covered, but what I needed more was a better grasp of an operational side. So. Five years later, I worked out that I could 
Yeah, I do a full-time business degree at NTU in Darwin three days a week if I chose my subjects wisely and have three days at the station and one day effectively travelling in between. Wow, that's uh, that's a commitment though. That's that's a pretty massive and a lot of miles because you, you're over 400k south of Darwin. No, yeah, those days we were only 110k Oh, from easy. Darwin. That's oh, perfect. Two, maybe, maybe it was 200, it was two hours, yeah. yeah. Those days it was before children and before um, a partner and so I was able to control my own time and I was very super organised. It's it's funny that, how that changes when when small people come along, isn't it? Yeah, priorities change a little bit. Um, (laughs) Those days I was also very involved in Cattlemen's Association and I was the secretary of the top end branch of the anti-cattlemen's association and then um president and so well you you were the inaugural secretary i'm pretty sure were you what was that like was that the actually setting it up or were you just the first time that um they decided they needed a secretary no um and so we were inaugural members of the top end branch and so yeah, I can't remember what year it was, whether it was 95, 96 or something. Prior to that, there'd only been the Alice Springs, Catherine and Barclay branches of the Anti-Cattlemen's Association. What happened at that time that you really needed to establish that in, in the Territory? Yeah, look, there was um, the floodplains were moving yeah, from a buffalo base to a cattle base. And so yeah, the and with the live export getting stronger, you had a whole heap of um, cattle people in the top end who weren't represented and operating floodplain properties were very, very different to anywhere else in the Territory. And so, yeah, they had their own special concerns and issues and the time was right. And what was it like, because you were obviously quite young then too and female and you know, this is, this is the first time they've established this kind of body and, and obviously things are, you know, becoming more organised in the Territory in terms of select breeding. Um, what was it like for you to come into to that organisation at the time? I'd always attended um, any meetings with mum and dad. Mum had been nominated as the secretary and she, she had declined and passed the nomination over to me. Oh, that's nice. That's um. That's that's the, like what's that delegating? I'd been um, a minute secretary for her for the local land care group and other things, and so it was. I would have been doing the task anyway. And I was like, well, and so she'd no. You might as well have it in your own right. Fair enough. Uh, well. And so she did. Um, you, you're one of four, aren't you? So did the other kids really enjoy the rural life too or is it really you that, that's been excited about it? Yeah, look, um, I was the youngest of four and mum often, um, yeah, she had four children under five oh. and all through... Um, no wonder she's passing off jobs to you, Maura. <laughs> In an era when it was often said, uh, everybody's leave the bush. And she goes, well, I must have done something wrong. I got three out of four back home. And so at one stage, there were three of us very involved in the property. And over time, I've stayed the most involved. And you've stuck with Brahmins. And there is, you know, a um, 
a, a move now with a lot of crossbreeding that is coming into the territory. Traditionally, it's been a very big Brahmin stronghold, but there, are, you know, there's there's changes afoot. What about the Brahmin breed still really attracts you? I often say we've stayed pure, so you don't have to. <laughs> is, uh, is, uh, and with any of the crossbreeding programs, and um, everything has its place. Yeah, but for a strong yeah, crossbreeding program, you need to have the pure animals to go back to, yeah, the, or to really get yeah, the hybrid vigor and the bang for your buck. We love the Brahmin, the, and I don't see any point there doing something that you don't 100% love and it's never just been about numbers it's never just been about potential dollars it's because we love working with our animals and we love working on country and with country yes and we'll get we'll get on to to that in a second I do just want to because you know you were talking about you know when you were still quite young and doing courses in semen testing and that's sort of thing yeah. so obviously yeah. that genetic improvement was was important to you and and keeping I was always really lucky and that dad was very progressive and forward thinking and so making sure that animals were functional and fertile and really performing and so we were one of the early initiators of performance testing and semen testing and pregnancy testing and all those type of things always just trying to have the best animal for the environment and to be able to pass that on to our clients. Yeah, and you mentioned the environment, so we will we will go there because you, you are known yeah. as a, a modern family, uh, farmer and part of that reasoning is because of your holistic management credentials and being extensively involved with Indigenous cattle management. So why are they important to you and how did you go from that traditional you know, grazing model to to holistic in an area where I'm sure the neighbours looked at you funny when you started talking about that. Yeah, look, I think we've probably always been looked at a little bit funny, Jane. <laughs> oh, is, uh, <laughs> uh, and so I guess what was interesting for us in that there was never any um, big paradigm shift. It was or uh, the managing holistically, uh, looking after country at the same time as their yeah, cattle and family. That was very natural to us. Yeah, we did not. Uh, there was lots of things that we didn't uh, know much about, and um, and so when we stumbled on uh, upon holistic management, I was like, ah, it was light bulb moments, and I was like that makes sense now and uh, suddenly uh, we had a language to put around some of the things that we were thinking and we learned a whole swag of tools and techniques that could further progress what we were wanting to achieve but just simply didn't have the knowledge or skills at the time to do. So when you say um, you know you were exposed to it and, and found that what, what was the first time that um holistic management was mentioned to you and that light bulb where were you like what, what yeah, happened look, and i think you're attracted to things of interest and so it's certainly yeah mum and i had heard about it in lots of different forums if, um, and we'd been very involved in we'd started to be involved in land care in North Queensland and then when we yeah, came to the Northern Territory very involved in land care 
is uh, and property management planning. And so these concepts were starting to be heard of and coming up then. Is, uh, and some friends down south they were doing stuff. Mum um, had, yeah, while she was at a land care conference in Orange, yeah, she had the opportunity to meet with Alan Savory and hear him speak. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And then, but really it wasn't until we'd moved down to Mataranka and yeah, that, yeah, we met, mum met Chris Hengler from Kachana Station in the Kimberleys. And um, he was implementing Alan Savory's uh, teachings and stuff over at Kachana in the Kimberleys. And we'd heard of Brian Marshall, a holistic management educator. And I was like, and so there was a number of things all lining up and yeah, getting our interest. And um, Dad was still a little bit not sure. And I was like, yep, I can see how it would work on small operations down in New South Wales, et cetera. But he wasn't sure on its application up here. And, so, and then mum had got tickets to a workshop over at Kachana. And she had won tickets at a DPI field day yeah, for a course. And so... And it's like, I'm going, yeah, who's coming with me? And so yeah, dad um, at the last minute, yep, he'd go with her. And he was blown about away with what he saw. And I was like, we need to have been doing this yesterday. And <laughs> as it turned out, mum had already yeah, put plans in motion to get Brian Marshall up to Kudadi yeah, to run a training course. Oh, <laughs> she's so, very good at this delegation thing, isn't she? She's, <laughs> she's got it all sorted. You think um, you're running the show, but you're not. Your mum is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was October 2005. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's just been part of our life ever since. So how did your business and, and your property change? Like, you, I know that you said that it was just a very natural progression from ideas that you already had, but when you really f- found the language and got the principles, um, how, did the, how did the landscape or your business change? Yeah, look, um, the biggest change was from set stocking yeah, to planned grazing. And for a stud operator and yeah, small breeding herds, that was a massive mindset that there was huge benefit in actually boxing, that it, we could actually run our yeah, stud operation as a boxed mob as opposed to select breeding groups. That would, would have been huge. And was there, there'd be a fair bit of experimentation with that. Yeah, look, everything's always a learning journey. We used our stud animals first and foremost as um, environmental tools. And so on reinvigorating virgin block here at Kudadi and knocking down old uh, dry feed and freshening it up and all those type of things. Yeah, as combining the animals in uh, to a single mob or large mobs and moving them through the landscape, they were able to freshen it and keep having fresh feed ahead of them. So how does that work with a stud when you are control well, you, you select siring, aren't you? Yeah, and so we now um, are actually more of a mindset of letting nature have a little bit more say. And so 
we're then using science as well of DNA testing to know who's who. Yeah, so we're using multi-sire mating. Multi-sire mating with the DNA analysis at the end. Yeah, so, so and so for science, parent, science um, verification. And is that like is that model? You know, you're you're known for for bringing that kind of grazing system to the territory and really pioneering the holistic thought over there. How like when did it? When did other people start coming on board with what you were doing? And so that initial training course in two thousand and five, um, some of our neighbours, um, neighbouring families, yeah, participated in that training with us, and then. Every six months for a number of years, yeah, we hosted um, further training courses. And so, and looking back over the photos, yeah, there were people from WA and South Australia and Victoria, as well as across the territory who participated in that training. Amazing. And so it was, yeah, what was quite effective of, of, on that training is that you were on site and it was small numbers. And so we had brilliant access uh, to our educator, um, Brian Marshall, who was one, was one of the foundation uh, trainers in Australia. You, you've been so involved with so many different organizations and and bodies and that sort of thing i'm just having a look down your your resume as such and there's you know young cattleman of the year there's a, a, plethora, a plethora of those kind of acknowledgements um but also uh the director of soils for life so that would really play into what you were doing with the holistic management as well why is it important for you to, to be involved with these bodies as a kid, we were always taught that we had no right to complain about something if we weren't prepared to do something. And so that yeah, sense of responsibility and that understanding that we were all given a gift of our voice and the opportunity to make a difference. Yeah, that yeah, you just had to be prepared to do something. When you say do yeah. something, I'm actually looking at the list now, so there's um, the Centenary Medal for Services to Regional Australia in 2003, Northern Territory Young Cattlemen in two, 2011, Northern Territory Rural Woman of the Year runner-up in 2009 and the Northern Territory Young Australian of the Year in 1998. That's, that's a lot of getting out and doing something, Moira. Why do you, like, it's, it's a wonderful way that you prioritise. Uh, I guess um, that was my social life. I'm not a camp drafter, I'm not a rodeo person um, or somebody to sit on the beach. And I guess whether it's that combination of the practical element, what better way to actually interact and meet some fascinating people than um, get out there and do it yeah, through community organisations. Absolutely. And do you think, like you've been involved with industry organisations as well and do you think that the sort of way that cattle are produced or the, the cattle industry in the Northern Territory is changing? Do you feel like there is a bit of a shift? Yeah, look, it's constantly evolving and uh, the Territory is a really interesting space in that there's been so many grand ideas and huge plans over every decade. And uh, what was happening here in the 70s with massive clearing developments and studs and things. And so lots of times um, there's been ideas that were earlier 
event the rest of the supporting systems were able to and the and in so many cases they're grand failures as well as grand ideas and there's so lots of rises and falls but i guess my two biggest things is the bush needs families and the bush needs custodians of the land the, and so when we work with nature um, and with the support of families and supportive communities, then pretty much anything's possible. So you mentioned family and custodians of the land just then, and, and a lot of the territory you do hear, you know, it is a lot of corporate businesses up there and, you know, there's still a steady stream of young young ringers heading up there for the, the Wild West kind of adventure on some of those bigger properties. Do you think that that still applies? Do you, do you feel...? Yeah, look, um, yeah, the, and so, and it's happening more and more, yeah, the, and you've got the, um, and that's a little bit of a concern for me, that uh, it takes a long time to actually learn to read country yeah, and understand the nuances of a particular area and all through the different seasons. And so when people are coming and going in quick rotation, whilst they can bring fresh ideas, um, unfortunately, they're not good enough to understand how the country works. So that's a concern that that connection to country um, could be being lost by such a high turnover, a quick turnover of staff from the corporate sector. Um, do, you yeah. think that, do you think the corporates acknowledge that and there could be opportunity for them to, to as part of you know, learning how to ride a horse or, you know, master some of those places that there is an element of, of teaching them about country? Uh, look, um, I think there's an increasing understanding of the need, how high uh, it actually gets to get up there in the practicality, I can't say, yeah, simply because I haven't had any experience in the corporate sector directly. But it is a little bit worrying when you see yeah, the regular turnover of or people just staying on a particular property for only a couple of years before, or even as short as five years before moving on. Oh yeah, gosh, I was going to say five years is quite long for the for the current generation, isn't it? Yeah, well, very possible. And but you're only just starting to see a few different seasons. You need lots of lifetimes yeah, to actually yeah, see change at a country level and manage change. Um, and so, the any length of time. The longer the time on, on country, the better as far as I'm concerned. In all of this time that, you know, you've been rattling through all these lovely things that you've been doing, you did also have two little boys who um, needed educating. And I guess I do want to ask you about the ICPA and your time there. But when when did they arrive and, and how have they found living where you do at Madarenka? They arrived 13 and 14 or 14 and 15 years ago, Nelly. One actually has a Victorian passport, their birth certificate. <laughs> Victorian passport, same thing, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and so the boys are they're quite close together. While I was pregnant or a baby in on my hip, I couldn't necessarily be 
in the stockyards or doing things as hands-on. And so my husband and I decided that we would have a bit of a tree change and yeah, live somewhere else for a little while. And I, all we needed was a nice place to live and good internet and I could still run the business side of the business from anywhere. And so we went and lived in Albury for wow. 18 months. I love so uh, I love this for so many reasons. First of all, the fact that if you can't be in the yards, you can't be anywhere near it. So because you'd just be tempted, I'm sure. Uh, so living. Did My you... rule was if I couldn't fit through the rails, then I wasn't allowed in, uh, and that's not because um, we had we have wild cattle because we've got beautiful quiet cattle. But um, you still need to be able to you know, work their yeah, pressure zones and give them space. And if I couldn't uh, quickly squeeze through when I needed to, then I was like, nope, I didn't, shouldn't be there. That is very, very clever. Um, and I'm sure a lot of rural women can relate to that. Did your husband come from Aubrey? Is that why he chose there? No, yeah, he was a Tennant Creek boy. Neither of us had ever lived in climate that had four seasons, and so we thought that would be a nice experience. And it's, was it? Uh, it was beautiful. <laughs> uh, Albury was a gorgeous place to live, and we've still got lots of close friends from there. And um, it was close to lots and lots of things, and direct flights back to from Melbourne to Brisbane. And so he'd put me on a plane with... Two ba- a baby on each hip or a baby on the front and a baby on the back. Mum and Dad had picked me up at the other end. I guess a lot of people, when you have children in the bush, the homeschooling them isn't always at the um, front of mind and it sort of all comes to a, an amazing uh, reality when um, they turn five. I, I have to say you, you and your brother were the first students through the Charters Towers distance ed in North Queensland, weren't you? Yeah, we were. Um, we started through as grade six and seven um, when DEC opened back in '87 or '88. Yeah, no, 80, yeah, I think '80 somewhere around there. John Clark was the principal. Yep, he most definitely was. And he was the principal when I went through, and when my children started going through. <laughs> <laughs> I did hear that he was there for a very long time. A very long time. So you you had some experience of distance ed. Did you remember that when you realised you'd have to teach your own children? I loved our you know, school of air, air correspondence and boarding school experience. Um, for me, it was a great foundation. I never had any intentions whatsoever of teaching our own kids. We had the luxury of, so when the kids were born, you know, we were operating an Aboriginal lease uh, property, Namal Namal, uh, which was yeah, 100k from Mataranka. But mum and dad had their retirement block. Um, the stud uh, base Kudadi, which was only 10k out of Mataranka. And Mataranka had a great little school. Mm. And so that was part of the reasoning um, when they, the boys came to school age and my brothers were no longer involved in the, the business. Um, our business model needed to be relooked at. And so we handed over the uh, lease of Nummel Nummel and sold the majority of our cows. We'd had a herd of nearly 3,000 and we downsized them to just Kudadi and um, the bull breeding operation. And the kids went into school here. And what that must have been a massive decision for you all to make around the kitchen table. 
Yeah, look, it was. It was a decision that um, we had made a number of years earlier that we wanted to do that. And then as with, and so making a decision is hard enough, then actually making it happen can sometimes be harder. It didn't happen straight away. Yeah, we then, when we thought it was going to, it didn't, and we re-looked at a few things, and then second time round, it all fell into place quite quickly. You, you've been in a long-term business partnership, I guess, with your parents since you were very young. What's, what's the secret to your success? Because sometimes that's – obviously family means a lot to you, but that can be quite difficult sometimes in some, some rural operations. Yeah, look, respect and communication and understanding that we're all different. And I guess the other thing is that – to try and leave the egos at the ta- outside the room. That is very yeah. hard to do sometimes when you've got that yeah. multi-generational <laughs> thing going. The, um, yeah, it is. And I guess at times remembering that we're all on the one team and, that, and so who gets credit or who actually yeah, comes in and closes a deal or who doesn't or who talks in what. Yeah, we all have different strengths and so, yeah, but at the end of the day, we're all a team and we all have parts to play. I guess, you know, your boys are old enough now that, you know, they've got ideas about what they want to do. Your, your family's had such a long association with the, with the land and with country and, and with cattle. What do you, what's your hope for them? They actually aren't that interested in <laughs> um, country and cattle and my biggest and really the only yeah desire for them is for them to live happy and productive lives where they feel they have a purpose and they're um, are contributing and so but everything that I do is designed that they have options to feel that they can do whatever they set their mind and actions to. That's wonderful, and I'm sure in time they will appreciate that so much. Okay, well, in the, on that note, um, Moira, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Actually, no, I haven't asked you everything because there's one question on the Beef Podcast that we ask everybody, and I nearly forgot to ask you. Um, your favourite cut of beef uh, to cook when you are cooking for your family on a weeknight dinner, what is your favourite cut? Oh, that one's tricky. I actually don't do a hell of a lot of cooking in our family. Really? My husband does. Stop it. He needs to I need he needs to run some courses on that, maybe perhaps. Um Okay. Well in that case, Moira, what is your favorite meal that your husband cooks? Uh he's Italian, so we have lots of spaghetti based type stuff and yeah, sauces and things. But probably a favourite of both of ours is you can't beat a roast, and I really like a good shoulder roast and um, with uh, fresh lemon squeezed all over it, slow cook. Uh, the good thing about that is you can take a frozen roast straight out of the freezer and squeeze lemon all over it and chuck the potatoes and onion and some garlic all in the one pan and cover it then at lunchtime and come back and you've got dinner. That's amazing. That sounds like my kind of meal. Thank you so much, Moira, for, for sharing so much today. No, my pleasure, Jane. Cheers. Thanks for listening. That was Moira Lanzaran from Kudari Brahmins at Mataranka in the Northern Territory. 
be sure to look up our back catalogue on the Beef Australia website. There's plenty of interesting characters to get your ears around. Talk to you soon. I'm Jane Cudahy. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.